May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. It's great to be back among you this morning. I know that Bishop Kevin, I trust, did well pinch hitting in my absence. I've had nothing but positive reports, which is important because uh, I only heard from him, but uh, <laughs> I will take your silence as a tacit endorsement as well. So sometimes the characters in Scripture are incredibly human. So it is this morning in John's Gospel. I'm going fishing. We'll go with you. And even though Jesus has risen from the dead and appeared to them in the upper room, the disciples know they still have to eat. Many of them were fishermen, so it's natural when they need to provide for themselves and their families, they go fishing. We all have these kind of habits that we return to, things that are the most familiar. Some of them are better for us than others. Some habits, if we tried to explain them to anyone else, would make us seem very strange to one another, wouldn't they? For example, how do you put on your socks in the morning? I'm a left foot, right foot man myself. But do you do it the same way every time or do you switch it up? How do you brush your teeth? For two minutes every time? And when? Before or after breakfast? Right before bed or in some other order? You probably have had this experience if you've ever had to drive anyone else's car and you discover that they move the seat and the mirrors around in all the wrong ways. Ways that make no sense at all. Habits are deeply personal. And they're comforting mostly because they're ours. They're comfortable. Our hearts and our minds like that kind of consistency. So familiar rituals and places and people provide a kind of stable foundation that we really enjoy. Uh, those of you who are old enough to remember Cheers know that sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. So the disciples have been following around Jesus for quite a while. And after those first initial post-resurrection appearances, it seems like they've gone back to Galilee, not just because Jesus told them to, but also in order to return things to a state of relative normalcy. They are together, though not all of them are present, and they're fishing just the way that they used to do. This is what they know best. And whatever the resurrection means for them as individuals and as a group, it must be a little reassuring to go back to the life that they know well. They're probably looking for a little bit of rest, a little quiet downtime on the lake. Peter has, of course, taken on a leadership role. The tradition tells us that Peter is one of the oldest disciples, so it makes sense that he's the one scheduling the fishing trip, unsuccessful though it seems to be. They start around dark and work all night, and as dawn approaches, the nets are still empty. And just as the sun began to rise, a man appears on the shore who the disciples do not recognize. And he shouts out to the boat to learn whether or not they've been successful. Now, this is a tradition that lives on to our own day, at least among a certain kind of sporting gentleman. I've talked to you before a little bit about how much of my early life was spent in the woods or on the water, 
trying to keep three boys quiet to sneak up on some poor defenseless animal or fish. We were a loud but also an outdoors family, which means learning a certain kind of culture and a certain kind of language. And this moment, the inquiry about the success of the great hunt is an important one. Everybody wants to show off the catch of the day or else commiserate if the fates have not been kind. And this phenomena is always set in the most casual language you can possibly find, no matter how successful you might have been. So in my experience, this conversation usually goes like this, and I'll be reading both parts. <clears throat> Y'all do any good? Well, you know, we're not getting too many in the boat, but it sure is a nice day out. I guess that's why they call it fishing and not catching. Man, I know that's right. Y'all be good now. Yes, sir. Now, the basic outline of that conversation has incredible utility. You could have caught a world record salmon or not had a nibble at all, and the details probably don't have to change one bit, especially that bit about fishing and not catching. That's a key one. So the disciples have been out all night. They haven't caught a single fish. And now the man on the shore, who they don't recognize, says they should just try the other side of the boat. And when they do, there are suddenly so many fish in the net that they can't even haul it back on board. And now, all of a sudden, it's abundantly clear who this mystery man out for a morning stroll must be. Peter, of course, overreacts because that's what Peter does best. <laughs> when he sees the miraculous catch of fish and he guesses who it must be, he leaps into the water to get back to the beach as fast as he can. Now, we know he must have been surprised because the scripture tells us he's stripped for work, but he puts on the outer garment before he jumps in the water, which seems like getting things in the wrong order. And the other disciples are left on the boat to drag the net full of fish back to the beach on their own. But when they get there, Peter suddenly wants to help. He's like an eager child trying to impress a favored relative. He pulls the net full of fish ashore all by himself. Now, Jesus never has to come out and tell the disciples that it's him. They just know. They recognize their master. They don't ask him what he's been doing. It's enough just to be there with him around their little charcoal fire, reunited with the Lord. And the resurrected Christ is seemingly happy just to be with his friends again. He doesn't stand up to tell them the incredible story of everything that he's been through. He offers them breakfast. Now, this may feel to you like a very kind of male bonding experience, <laughs> Let's not talk about what I've been doing. Can we just have breakfast? It's a very classic sort of male pattern, perhaps. Jesus knows that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. But it seems to me that rather than being reticent, Jesus is just doing what he has always done, the thing that he promised to do for his followers. Before anything else, Jesus feeds his disciples. He is the bread of life. And those who follow after him will never be hungry. So as Peter is about to be asked to do, the shepherd feeds the sheep. Jesus doesn't give them a lengthy description about the purpose of hospitality, about how it functions in the life of a Christian believer. He doesn't explain to them the profoundly biblical and holy thing that happens when we share food with one another. 
He doesn't cite for them the literally hundreds of examples of meals in Scripture as a reminder that God cares about making sure that the most basic needs of human beings are met. He just toasts some bread and fish over the fire and shares it with them and trusts that they get it without having to be hammered over the head. And that's sometimes the best thing that we can do in the aftermath of a traumatic and incredible experience is to sit quietly and share a meal. And that, I think, is probably what the trial, the crucifixion, and the resurrection must have felt like for the disciples. They did not exactly cover themselves in glory over those three days. And Jesus' return does not erase their failure. So they just sit together quietly and eat, not trying to explain everything that's happened or understand what it all means. Sharing life and sustenance with one another is more than enough. And if the disciples break that moment, if they start to quiz Jesus about what he's been doing and where he's been, the moment's lost. It seems to me that this encounter on the beach functions a little bit like one of those post-credit sequences that have been part of these wildly popular Marvel superhero movies. Uh, For those of you who have not been to the theater recently, I'll just describe briefly. So after the action wraps up, the movie is basically over, and then a whole theater full of people sit through five minutes of extended credits with every videographer and best boy and grips assistant you could imagine, and then there's a little stinger at the very end that's usually about 30 seconds. And it's not usually something crucial to the plot of the movie, but it's more of a sly wink and nod for those who want to hint about what might be coming next. And this is what Jesus does for the disciples. He doesn't have to tell them the whole story again. He just has to sort of say, this is what it is like to be with the resurrected Christ. And what's next for the disciples will be beyond what they could imagine anyway. They've come back home to go fishing, find something that feels relatively familiar, and now Jesus is there too. And what he has planned for them is not just a return to what they've done before, but a mission that will take them from Galilee back to Jerusalem, to all Israel, and eventually to the four corners of the globe. The disciples may have been hoping for a little bit of downtime, but Jesus is waiting for them to get the old crew back together again. And this is a big challenge. I sometimes wonder if all the disciples were excited to see Jesus the way that Peter was, or if some of them might have said, well, you know, let's just, we can just stay in the boat for a little bit. He's there. We we know where he is. A little nervous about what Christ might have in store. And that's because the disciples have great plans for their lives. Just like Paul in Acts does, Paul is convinced, or Saul, rather, before the Lord changes his name, that his mission is important, that he needs to go to Damascus, that he needs to stomp out the church that's beginning to grow there, but Jesus has other ideas. We have plans ourselves. We have projects and dreams that we want to accomplish. We have places to go and people to see, but in the light of the resurrection, those plans have to be revised or else abandoned altogether. Jesus doesn't have to say this to the disciples on the beach but that's what's going to happen. It starts with the restoration of Peter, and in light of that, 
it will continue from there. The disciples will be given new tasks to do, new work to accomplish, new plans to fulfill for God. We want to do our own thing because we think our own thing is pretty good. We want to go fishing. We'd like to go to Damascus to do whatever we think might be best for us, to make us happiest. But Christ is constantly interrupting. He inserts himself. He appears suddenly, and our plans have to change because he is changing them for our good. Now here at St. Charles, we know a little bit about that. Christ inserted himself into our plans. That's how we ended up here. As you may remember, this has not always been our church home. That's how we found ourselves moving here to Central Valley Road, getting to know our new neighbors, adapting to life in a new place. Christ interrupted our plans. And they were good plans, faithful plans, plans that we had spent time and energy and prayer on. And yet when Jesus shows up and tells us to try fishing on the other side of the boat, we have to listen. Now, this can be frustrating, particularly for those of us who spend time carefully laying out our schedules. Who does Jesus think he is? Now, the interruptions that Christ makes into our lives are always for our benefit. Jesus does not show up on the beach to shame the disciples, but to feed them. He does not blind Saul on the road to Damascus to punish him, but to give him his true identity. Jesus Christ interferes in our lives if it feels like interference, because our lives need course correction. They need to be conformed to who he is and what he desires, not who we are and what we desire. The fact is that Jesus is disruptive. He's inconvenient. He doesn't fit into our lives like a kind of religious accessory because he's not just a part of our lives. He is the ground and hope on which all our life rests. That's at least one of the reasons why worship matters and why in worship we don't do exactly the same things that we do anywhere else in our lives. Because entering into God's presence and offering the praise he deserves takes us out of ourselves and our preferences and puts us in the presence of God Almighty, who is above and beyond what we might think is most important. In fact, it seems that God intends that all our lives be shifted and reoriented so that our priorities match his. What a novel concept. Christ defies our conceptions of religion as something that we can add to our lives as upstanding, upright, moral, decent people because Jesus needs more than lip service from us. He wants us to follow him where he leads even all the way to the cross. And if we prefer to keep doing things our own way, to ignore the call to discipleship, we end up casting the net out over and over off the wrong side of the boat and catching nothing, or else blindly stumbling down the road that leads to nowhere. Jesus offers us his new resurrection life, and that life is necessarily linked with his. That means we have to follow him and eat with him and obey him when he sends us. Now, this is a challenging thing, of course, because we are so proud of the plans that we have for ourselves. 
We have such high hopes, things that we're looking forward to, that Christ may ask us to give up or set aside for his sake. But if we are listening for the voice of our Savior and seeking to follow where he leads, then we know that what he has in store is better for us than we might even hope for ourselves. That means that as Christians, we should be ready to do more than we ever thought possible. Because Christ is the one who's leading. It means that there is always more to come. Here at St. Charles, it means that in the months to come, we're going to have to try even harder to hear what Jesus is saying to us in our new home, in our new neighborhood. Because we know we were called to this place for a purpose. It might have been possible for the disciples and Peter to go home after their failed fishing trip. It might have easy, easy, even been easier for them in the long run to take the other way around, to ignore that shouting stranger on the beach, to skip breakfast and go back to their other lives. But disciples recognize the voice of their master just as sheep know the voice of their shepherd. And the life of a disciple is one of obedience going where Jesus leads. And when he calls... We have to be ready and willing to chuck everything overboard and follow. Amen.